0: The small letter of Titus towards the end of the New Testament, chapter 2. Let me read this for us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As we approach God's word this morning, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us to our own to figure out this life, but you have given us your word that communicates grace to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ and instructs us for godly living before him and because of him. Would you help us now to understand your word and apply it to our lives? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm persuaded that too many of us, myself included, often, too many of us think that the Christian life is... Get in by grace, stay in by effort. Too often we forget that not only are we saved from something, but we're actually saved to something. We might say, oh, we're saved by grace, but the rest is up to us. Well, the book of Titus is a short, punchy letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus, and Titus is a pastor of a young church plant on the Greek island of Crete. And what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to communicate to Titus say, if you want to survive in that culture, you need to know primarily two things. The two overarching core principles of the book of Titus are sound doctrine and godly living. He gives this away in the very first verse of the whole letter. He says, Knowledge of the truth accords. With godliness. The two ideas that continue to come up are sound doctrine, godly living, and we can't separate those ideas. Paul commends Titus that the church should be grounded in the truth and that truth should actually make a difference in their lives. But the link between them is what's so important. We can't separate these ideas. And so rather, instead of get in by grace, stay in by effort, Paul is saying that the entire Christian life from start to finish is one of grace. And it is very clear in our passage this morning, our passage that is one long sentence. Maybe you caught that. You saw all the commas and you're saying, okay, how far is Paul going to keep going? But as we see that, the Christian life is all of grace. We see that in Jesus Christ, we have three things. We have a lot of things, but three things that our passage unfolds for us today is that we have saving grace, we have training grace, and we have waiting grace. So this means that the same amazing grace that saves us is the same amazing grace that transforms us and it preserves us. Or to put it in other language of, of the scriptures, the same grace that redeems us is the same grace that purifies us, and perfects us. There's a looking back, there's a living now, and then there's a looking forward. But let's uh, walk through this text together. Titus 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first thing I want to notice is the word appeared. Sometimes we kind of gloss over words and, and we don't think about how they might be impacting the entire idea And the word appeared, because this is one big long sentence, the word appeared is actually the main verb of the passage. Every other verb that you see in there, like training or renouncing or living or waiting, it actually hangs off of or it depends on the main verb, which is appeared. So we can notice that this word appeared is passive. It's passive. God's grace appears to you. We don't coerce God or figure out how to bring grace to us, but it actually appears according to his own mercy. I had this coffee mug at home that I drank from yesterday, and I couldn't help but notice on the coffee mug it says, grace and coffee change everything. The coffee part's probably a bit overstated. But... Grace changes everything. But grace, it's used so much in the Bible that it's kind of this churchy word that sometimes we can lose sight of. And so as we study this, as we look into this passage where grace appears, uh, let's, let's don't go on autopilot just thinking, you, you know, I've got that grace thing, I understand what that means. Let's, let's dig into this word grace. The word grace shows up in the Bible over 130 times. Probably one of your favorite verses uses the word grace. And admittedly, it's it's a little tough to define. It's kind of like trying to define love. It's kind of hard to get your hands, get your mind around that. It's a little bit more easy to to explain and describe what that looks like. You know, we just sang amazing grace. Uh, But how many people in this world sing the world's most popular song without really knowing We're experiencing what grace is all about. You know, we sing the song and we think, okay, well, is grace a sound? Is grace a teacher? Well, how does grace know the way home? And if you turn to a dictionary, you might find something in the entry upon grace, you might find something like undeserved favor, you know, getting something that you haven't earned, like a present from a friend. And truth be told, that's not a bad place to start when we are defining grace. But when you turn to the Bible, grace takes on a distinctive flavor with two main ideas, two main themes when the Bible is talking about grace. And our passage in Titus actually uses both of them. The first way grace shows up in the Bible is to describe the character of God. Andrew read it earlier. If you look throughout Scripture, God is always described, or is often described, as being gracious, He reveals himself that way in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And this gets repeated time and time again as God reveals who he is. And as he acts and he does things based on who he is, grace describes who God is. Then you get the New Testament, okay? And then you hit John 1, 14, And there Jesus is described as full of grace and truth. So then it shouldn't surprise us when Paul is unpacking and he's discipling people and he's training pastors, it shouldn't surprise us that when he's talking about the significance of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, the word grace in Paul alone appears 86 times. So by the way, if you want an 86-day devotional plan, Maybe pick one of each of those verses every day, and I would, I, would, uh, I would expect that you'd be greatly blessed by a study of grace. So several of these, we're not going to look at all 86. This is not an 86-point sermon. But let's look at some of them. If you uh, go ahead and turn to Romans 3. Keep your finger in Titus 2. We'll turn to Romans, and then we'll come back. Before we talk about transforming and preserving grace, I think it's really important for us to get a handle on saving grace. So, Romans 3, we're going to look at a couple verses, starting in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here we're told that that none of us measure up to God's standard. We've all fallen short. And it's actually not just that we haven't measured up, but we've actually done things to deserve his displeasure. So when grace comes to us where it says grace is a gift, it comes to us not as neutral people. (laughs) It's not just that we haven't done this, but we've actually fallen Short, We are not just undeserving, we are ill-deserving sinners, but grace comes to us as a gift because of the work of Christ on the cross. Skip ahead a couple of uh, chapters to chapter 5 of Romans, look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's referring to Adam, then much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, grace has abounded for many. So because of grace is in the nature of God, is in the nature and the character of Jesus Christ, grace is what abounds to produce the free gift of salvation for guilty sinners. And this is the grace, the first grace, that Titus 2.11 is talking about. And this is so important that because Paul is talking to Titus, he wants him to have an understanding of of sound doctrine. And so if we're going to have an understanding of the truth, we have to see that it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, not your own doing. The grace of God appears, and it rescues you who are dead in sin. To make you alive in Christ. If you go back to Titus, we're in chapter 2, but just a few verses later in chapter 3, starting in verse 4, Paul makes this abundantly clear, very explicit. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, there's that word again, appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How does it get any clearer than he saved us? So when we read these in parallel, we see that grace appearing is a lot like the loving kindness and the goodness of God appearing. About eight years ago, I was on a plane. I was flying to Scotland as part of an RUF Uh, short-term spring break mission trip, and as I'm taking my seat back in row, I don't know, 50, 100, I don't know, I'm sitting there, I'm preparing for the flight, and all of a sudden I get this tap on my shoulder. I look up, and it's the flight attendant, and she says this, she says, excuse me, sir, but I need to move you to a different seat. I said, Okay, I'm sitting by myself. It's no big deal. I can just move. Maybe somebody wants to sit next to their brother or sister. That's fine. Uh, Grab my things, and we start walking. We start walking. And we keep walking. (laughs) And I I have no idea what's going on, but we get closer and closer to the front of the plane, and all of a sudden I see this flight attendant reach for that golden curtain. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. And in it I see this magical place first class, international, which is insanely better than regular first class business class. And I clearly do not fit in here. I do not deserve this. And I don't know what fluke happened in their system, but suddenly I am being ushered to a new seat. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking I'm pretty sure I know this has got to be at least an $8,000 seat. And that might have been a, might as well have been a million dollars to me at that time. And I'm thinking about how much I don't deserve this. And she shows me my seat and it's not just that it's a nicer seat, but there's a lot of benefits that come with it. Those seats go all the way down. <laughs> she brought me steak that was cooked creamy mashed potatoes, delicious top-shelf Merlot to pair well with it. I was dining, I was feasting, and what would it have looked like if in that moment I look around, I start to straighten up. Oh yeah, you're here too? Well, well thanks, I'm yeah oh yeah I was just doing a business deal back there and <laughs> of course it would look really weird for me to start boasting about this seat that I did not deserve or okay what if about that suppose this flight attendant comes back around and she's serving us and she drops something on the ground and she says oh sorry can you mind grabbing that for me <sighs> that's your job why would I do that That'd be crazy. We can't even think that's silly for us to think about. But when I have been shown this grace that I don't deserve, not only am I called not to boast about it, but I'm called to live in light of it. And so, of course, I would, I would love to help this lady who dropped something, or I would love to encourage those around me and be thankful for this upgrade that I didn't earn. So let's summarize. Let's be as clear and as simple as possible our human nature our condition we really want to take credit for things respect is earned right we want to take the credit so when it comes to god's approval so often we get, we think that we've got to do something to get it so let's think about this think about where you're at this morning Maybe you're here today and you've got this backwards. Maybe you're caught up in thinking, it could never be true that God could show me so much grace. Do you know what I have done? And do you know what I continue to do? Surely I've got to do something to make up for that. I mean, don't debt collectors make you settle for something? I mean, all these other rewards that we get in life, they've got to be earned. And so surely I need to do something for God. If that's you this morning, hear this. That is not the way grace works. That is not the way grace appears to you. He saved us. Your good works do not save you. They cannot save you. But he moves on. So remember, we're not just saved from something. We're saved to something good works are the necessary result of salvation but they're not the means of it grace is what saves you and grace is what motivates us to godliness and this is where i think we're going to spend most of our time this morning if you look at the next verse grace motivates godliness it is so big that it not only abounds in salvation But it overflows as a daily reservoir for the power of God for living. Or as I've kind of put this outline together, grace is a training grace. And this is the second way that the Bible talks about grace. Not only is it descriptive of who God is, but it also is described as a force or a power or an influence from God to us to change us and to help us. You've probably heard 2 Corinthians 12 9, Jesus says to Paul, He says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. See those parallel lines. My grace is sufficient for you. Yes, it's sufficient to save you, but guess what? It's also sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. So when we read verse 11, we got to keep going. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, comma, continuation of thought, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So right off the bat, let's, uh, let's dive into the word training. What does that mean? Training, as we so often use, uh, brings with it a few characteristics. Hard work. It brings progress. It captures that there's something outside of us, usually, when we have a trainer, there's something outside of us that is empowering us in the process. And what better trainer could there be than the grace of God? With any good training regimen... Before you can start building, some things actually need to be torn down. So in a diet, you don't just focus on what to eat, but you think about and you focus on what to cut out. Or when you're uh, working out, you don't just start lifting weights, but you stop couch-binging Netflix. There's some things you've gotta build into your life, and then there's some things you've gotta cut out of your life in a similar way the training of grace, there's a negative and a positive. There's a no and there's a yes. No to the world, yes to God. And this is an active thing. The Westminster Confession talks about stirring us up to be, or being diligent to stir up the grace of God that is in us. So training grace is a transforming grace, calling us to a very active lifestyle. But Instead of just this no, I think no and yes are very helpful because it holds out that contrast, but the words that Paul uses there are much, much stronger than just saying no and just saying yes. Renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. Paul doesn't want us to play around here. Renouncing is a strong word. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, I think when we think about ungodliness and we think about worldly passions... I think we could all come up with some pretty extreme and obvious examples. So actually what I want to unpack today are a little bit more subtle appearances of what I see in our culture of these two categories. The most important thing, though, is to see the category and think about how it can apply in your own life. So ungodliness, let's start there. Ungodliness is an external conduct and reputation that doesn't line up with the Bible. Not living the way God wants us to live. Paul says to Titus, that's not going to help the church in Crete. And God says to us, that's not going to help the church in Anderson. One subtle example of this external ungodliness that I see in the present age is complaining. The world is in a habit of complaining. We've all been there. We're catching up with friends, and after the small talk, maybe even sometimes in the small talk, you kind of feel this gravitational pull downward in the conversation. You hear things like this. Can you believe what the HOA is doing here? I am sick of all these restrictions. Or maybe... Some people just don't know how to be kind and love their neighbor. These kids are driving me crazy. Could I just have one moment to myself? But what we're really saying when we complain is that we're discontent with the circumstances God has given us. And complaint is a coping mechanism. And it's contagious. We love to commiserate together. But uh, the problem is complaining and grumbling is unhelpful, it's ungrateful, and it's unbiblical. And over time, it makes us and the people around us ungrateful as well. But rather, here's where grace trains us. Here's where grace transforms us. By the power of God's grace working in us, we can renounce complaining And we can cultivate thankfulness with joy. We rejoice that God has met our greatest need and grace appeared. And we claim his power to give thanks in everything, as the Bible calls us to do. Now, there's a lot of one anothering in the Bible. So what I'm not saying is that we can't ever share our our trials. We can't ever share our struggles and our challenges. We actually should do that and comfort one another and help one another and serve one another. And even we should lament when necessary. The Bible has great categories for godly lamenting. But what I think this does mean is that if we're going to renounce ungodliness, there's a certain level of being on guard for those things that can be helpful to so easily slip in to complaining and grumbling. You now Paul's challenging us. Well, what is a, what is a reputation for complaint? Say... About our belief in Christ and all the benefits that are ours in Him. How could it ever make sense for me to complain about anything in first class? I'm sorry, but this uh, these mashed potatoes are a little too cold. It's crazy. If we're sitting in first class, we've been ushered into a new seat into the saving grace of Christ. Then, complaint makes zero sense. But instead, we put it to death by the power of the grace of God working in us, and we cultivate, we we replace it with gratefulness and joy and thanksgiving. So if godliness, the first category there is this external reputation, then worldly passions refers to an internal, internal impulses and lusts like uncontrolled anger, hatred, sexual desires, envy, selfishness, and often these things make themselves known in the outward, but they start in the inward. An example of this that I see in our present age is the gradual and subtle inundation of our minds and our hearts in the culture of media and entertainment. So often we consume things and we don't give enough thought to what they're actually doing to us. We live in a culture that celebrates and encourages so many things that God hates, and if we want grace to train us to renounce worldly passions, then we would be wise to consider how those things are shaping us because nothing we do is neutral. Everything has some level of spiritual significance. Even brushing your teeth says something about what you believe about stewardship of the body. So it'd be wise to think about uh, some of these things that we do on a regular basis. I read this book by James K.A. Smith. It's called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. And in it, he talks about how every day we engage in what he calls cultural liturgies. And that's just a big fancy word for habits and routines. We engage in habits and routines every day. We have our morning routine, our coffee routine, our commute routine, our work, our school our evening, our entertainment routines. We have habits of the way we do things, but as I've already said, Smith's big point is that we often don't think about what those routines are doing to us. They're doing more than just ordering our days, but over time, they're shaping us. They have a formative effect on our hearts and our minds. It often happens unconsciously. And so he gives us lots of questions. And I'm just thinking of a a few that that maybe we should be asking ourselves today: How is our smartphone shaping us and our ability to be present with others? How how is your commute impacting your emotional health? What is YouTube teaching about the way life is supposed to work? How does the order of your day, the routine that you go through on a daily basis, what is that saying is most important to you? That you love the most. You spend your time thinking about and engaging in the most. As routines can impact us for good or for ill. But here's where Smith in his book intersects with Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, which, which we, we know really well, but let me just read that for us. Romans 12, 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians. Romans. All right, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, so not just by your own sheer effort and strength, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's an all-of-life worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So here, Smith talks about how not only do we need to consider how our routines are deforming us, but we need to replace them with disciplines that will transform us after the things of God. A friend of mine recently told me that I should be mature enough in my Christian walk that I can enjoy reading a sports article that regularly uses profanity without it harming me. Even though this author is saturating the page with blasphemies and crude humor, I should just be able to brush it off and enjoy. And here's what I fear, though. I fear that regular exposure to content like this is going to do more to me than just entertain me. Will it not have a formative impact on the way I think? Will it not shape what I say, giving me the vocabulary for expression? Will it not be subtly changing what I think is funny and, and find humorous? As we grow in our Christian life, do we really get to the point where we can intentionally place ourselves, expose ourselves to sin without getting sucked into it? Paul is telling us that as grace trains us, we don't toe the line. We don't play with it. We more and more renounce worldly passions and ungodly living. We don't invite it into our minds. And so this is why I think we've got to be careful what media and entertainment that we're regularly choosing, and consider, what is this doing to me? Am I consuming it, or is it consuming me? I'd suggest that no matter how funny or entertaining or scintillating it may be, if it's dragging me down, it's not worth it. And of course, we gotta be careful here We've got to hold this intention. So Paul, at the end of this sentence, he says, in the present age. And what I think that suggests is that as we live this no and yes lifestyle of grace, it's going to be noticeably counter-cultural. Paul wants the church in Crete to stand out. It's going to be noticeably counter-cultural. And if that's going to happen, then it's still going to be, to some degree, connected with culture. Paul's not calling us to isolate ourselves completely from the outside world, but his counsel is to a man, and his counsel is to us, that we live in this world with the very intent of winning people to Christ, to have a testimony of grace in the midst of a culture that is full of ungodliness and worldly passions. We're swimming upstream. Temptation will come. Opportunities to engage in what the world has to offer will come. But instead of inviting them into our lives all the more, I think Paul here is, is calling us to, to reach into this power of grace to develop counter-cultural anti-habits that will bolster our faith and boldly proclaim where our allegiance lies, and boldly proclaim that we have been saved by grace, and that is making a huge difference in our lives. But we've also got to be real. This is costly. Sometimes it means that we're not going to get to see the new movie that comes out. Sometimes it means we actually walk out in the middle of it. Sometimes it means that we get laughed at by our friends, even Christians. But it's worth it. If we're going to take Titus 2 seriously, and if we're going to believe in the power of grace, then it's worth it to be vigilant. The world says to toe the line and have a little fun, but the Bible says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 5. The Bible says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. These are Not small words. These are big calls for our lives. But rather than getting overwhelmed, God says, what I'm calling you to, I'm empowering you to do by my grace. Uh, God's given us a lot of training equipment. So when you have this imagery of training and you've got a trainer and you've got a goal and you've got something you're coming from and something you're going to, we have equipment as well. And God gives us a lot of equipment in the Christian life. I just want to mention two. One of them is going to be kind of an in-the-moment daily dagger to access this grace that we've been given. And the other one's going to be more of this regular lifestyle weekly of living in a community of grace. So the first one is this. A wise man once asked me, are the things I'm thinking about, the things I'm doing, the things I'm saying, the things I'm exposing myself to, do they pass the Philippians 4-8 test? So are all those things, using the language of Philippians 4-8, could they be described as true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise? Does that describe what I'm regularly exposing myself to and thinking on? The second thing is this, the means of grace. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, David, in the January 2nd sermon, preached an excellent sermon of just walking through what Christ has given us to be faithful disciples on this road of life. He's given us th- three, he's given a, lot, a lot of things, but the three primary things that Christ has given us, and, and the church has historically called this the means of grace, is he's given us his word, he's given us prayer, access to God through prayer, and he's given us the sacraments in the context of corporate worship and fellowship. He's given us baptism and the Lord's Supper. And what these things do for us is that they recalibrate us. That as we live our lives amidst ungodliness and worldly passions, they continue, continually call us back to this lifestyle of grace. But not only that, they actually, in a spiritual, mystical way, communicate grace to us by giving us the power that grace provides. And so we're exposed to his word in the preaching of the word, in the reading of the word. We are accessing God and and praying to him through the corporate prayers, through our prayer of confession, through our prayers that we offer uh, as, as we come to worship. And we're We're seeing visible signs of his grace as we partake in baptism and the Lord's Supper. How amazing is it to see in baptism this picture of God's grace coming to us. Not us bringing it down. And in the Lord's Supper, how amazing is it to see a picture of what it looks like to feast on Christ. And if we're going to live this Christian life in the power of grace... There's something spiritual that goes on as we commune with Christ in that meal. And we hear him say, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Do you ever feel weak coming in here to worship? you ever feel like you're just limping in? Receive the grace of God to take another step. Do whatever it takes to get here to experience God's grace coming to you afresh on a weekly basis. And of course, that also means that we've been given the word of God, we've given the ministry of prayer every day of our lives, and so we would make diligent use of it if we want to grow in godliness, because there's a yes side of things, too. So right now, we've just been looking mostly at the no side of things, but these means of grace are helping us to kind of consider, how do we live a yes life? How do we live a life of being transformed? Or as Titus 2 says, how does the grace of God train us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age? I think it means making diligent use of habits of grace. This makes sense to us in other things like diet and exercise. We know we've got to replace the, the bad things with the good things, but too often I think Christianity is viewed even by those of us that identify as Christians as a don't-do-this religion. But I hope you're seeing that Paul doesn't end here on the negative because it's the positive call that helps to drive out the negative call. Thomas Chalmers uh, described it this way. He said, it's the expulsive power of a new affection. And Jesus, in one of his parables, says you can't just sweep sweep up the house and clean it and just put it in order, but you've actually got to refill it. The Spirit of God has got to come and fill that house or it won't change. It won't be different than the way it was before. Or in other words, we've got to give life to habits of grace that help us us cut out the habits of sin. And over time, these spiritual disciplines, they pick up momentum. They build they become more and more natural to us. And in some cases, they become involuntary, like driving a car or reading a book. We don't think about putting the letters together anymore. We don't think about all the different things we've got to check when we're driving a car. We just do it. And that, I think, is what what Paul's picture here has in mind for us, is that the Christian life, the more and more we are exposing ourselves to the things of God and renouncing the things of the world, the more and more involuntary Living for Christ will be. But it takes intentionality. It takes commitment. It takes hard work in the training program of grace. So let me ask you a question. Think think for yourself in your own life right here. What do you need to say no to? What do you need to cut out of your life to take this call seriously? In addition to that, what do you need to say yes to? By the power of grace, what do you need to give life to as a commitment and a lifestyle of living this habit of grace? As we move into our our third point, it's going to be pretty short here as we close, but you never graduate from grace. But grace preserves you as you wait in hope for that grace to appear again in glory. Verse 13. Again, we're in the same sentence. Grace has appeared, saves us, it trains us, comma, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gives us grace in the waiting. The training grace of God is sandwiched by looking back at the first coming of Christ and looking forward to the final coming of Christ. And it's these great realities that motivate us and preserve us in the here and now. What's gonna help us to have real growth in the Christian life? Is it willpower? Is it accountability? Is it a plan? Well, these are all good things, but... Paul reminds us that the motivation for godly living is the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Savior to look back and remember our salvation in him. To look forward in great expectation for his glory to appear in his final coming. Oh, to see what Walt Wise is seeing right now. Would considering that preserve us in such a way that it would stir up God's grace to empower us in the here and now to live a lifestyle of grace? To live a life for Christ, who in verse 14 this reminds us of what he's done. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous. For good works. As we draw on the power of grace, we remember what Christ did when he appeared. The reason all this works is because Christ gave himself on the cross to redeem us and to purify us. And this is what would set the church apart from the culture Titus was dealing with. If the church is going to survive, he didn't want people thinking that being a Christian was just like letting Jesus take the wheel and sit and take a nap in the passenger seat. You might be able to say the right things. Maybe when somebody pokes you and you wake up and you've got the right answers, but, but really your heart's not in it and you're not vigilant, you're not awake. Your life doesn't look much different. There's no zeal for good works, but the, the challenge is we can actually fall off on the other side of this too. We can be so focused on the good works, we get all this backwards, that we forget that The grace power of Christ is the very foundation and engine for it. Jesus may be in your car, but you're behind the car pushing it. You're relying on your own strength and you're getting exhausted. You forgot that the same grace that saves you is the same grace that transforms you and it's the same grace that preserves you. To, To go back to one of the first statements, the Christian life is not get in by grace and stay in by effort. The Christian life is Grace. From start to finish. A life of grace in a community of grace. This community is Christ's own possession that he gave his life for. It reaches all the way back to the plan of God from the very beginning to be God to his people, but to purify them in holiness as his own possession. The Bible has no category for just solo Christianity. Christ didn't give his life just to save individuals. He gave his life for the church. And we can be confident that Christ will purify and protect and perfect his church because of the final words that Christ spoke on the cross. It is finished. His work is done. His final appearance is coming And the benefits of his work are secure in the here and now. And our job is to believe that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus and live a life that is empowered by the grace of God. Let's pray to that end together. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to keep this in mind? to set before us in daily choices and patterns that not only have we been saved by grace, but we live by grace in the here and now. We walk by grace. Father, would you transform us, renew our minds, that we could live in the midst of a dark culture as a community of grace shining bright in the name of Christ. Preserve us and uphold us. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.